Richard Blissbrook here. We are live. You sit here today with none other than Mark Victor Hansen. Bob Proctor. This is Kendra Hall. Tanya Stringer. Jeff Canfield. Whit Jones. James Clear. Les Brown. People want to hear stories. I like getting stories out of my guests here. So thanks for joining us. Makana, thank you so much for joining us today for the Authentic Networker podcast. I know you're holed up in Mexico City doing some phenomenal work, um, but I want to tell the audience, first of all, and maybe even remind you where I first, I didn't actually meet you, but I saw you. So my wife, Kimmy, is from Hawaii, and she hired you about, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago to play at an event, uh, like a retreat or some kind of uh, event that she was putting on. And she always talked about you. And one day she said, hey, McConaughey's playing. Um, I don't remember where it was, but you would remember somewhere in Oahu. And so we went to see you live. And I, I had actually never, so you'll appreciate this. My orientation to Hawaiian music is Don Ho. <laughs> Right. So when I got to sit in the audience and listen to you and your your friends play, I was just struck with the, the authenticity and the spirituality of the music and the fun that you were having. And so, to, you know, we just actually accidentally met up with you a few months ago at another event in Hawaii, which is where we talked about arranging this podcast. So I'm just so excited and honored that you've taken the time to uh, join us here in this podcast. And, you know, maybe, hey, start off by telling us, what are you doing in Mexico City? Sure. Well, Richard, thank you for having me and aloha to all of the viewers slash listeners out there. Um, right now, I'm in uh, Ciudad de Mexico doing music production and composition. Um, it's not a vacation, um, although it's a great place to vacation. Uh, I have been producing a lot of music. Um, it's a very rapid and intense production process where every day my production partner and I wake up and we don't have a plan and we have to create something from scratch by the end of the day. Um, and that sometimes involves, uh, you know, taking a coffee break and meeting a musician on the street and going, hey, do you want to come do a session, which we've done about five or six times. Oh, that's um, awesome. <laughs> It's that. really fun. Uh, it's it's a whole different way to approach music in the sense that it's so easy to get caught up doing music as a professional musician in the framework of a brand and your identity and what your audience expects and your, your past oeuvre and all of this stuff. But the project I'm working on um, is a departure from that where I get to basically just completely be spontaneous without being concerned about brand continuity and it results in immense diversity. I, the, the spontaneity of it is, uh, I don't know if that's a trademark or not, but it reminds me of something I read about you where you were invited to do a TEDx talk. And, you know, they're really strict about how prepared you are and, you know, you got to nail it to whatever it is, 17 minutes and stand in all the right places. And, and what I read is that you, you somehow snuck in 
to do your TEDx talk with zero preparation and you made it up in the moment. And I watched it and it was, it was inspirational and hysterical. Tell us about that. It was terrifying. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I won't go into how I pulled it off because I don't want to get anybody in trouble. But basically, I, I, I was able to um, go on stage without any preparation. And, you know, as I was standing backstage and even in the dressing room prior, my mind kept suggesting topics just out of self-defense, you know, like, don't go up there blank. You're, you're psychotic. You can't do that, you know. And I was like, no, no. So I did this whole empty mind meditation. And I started shaking because I was like, this is suicide. This is like career suicide. What are you doing? You know, you're crazy. And the whole point of what I wanted to prove, not to anyone but myself, was that there is this, this, um, this soup or this ocean of, of nutrients that's always there in a room with a lot of people, all of their ideas and consciousness and things are floating around. And if, if you can be available enough to tune into that collective frequency, and of course you're contributing to that yourself subconsciously, something hopefully interesting happens. And that's what happened. And that was kind of the whole point of the talk was to say, what is it like to tune in and actually trust without imposing any sense of control in order to meet any expectations of what people might, you know, project on you? Yeah. Reading the room, feeding off the audience. Well, that reminds me of something I want to read to the audience um, that came out of your, your own biogra biographical um, sketch where you just t tell stories of your life. But as I read your stories and read about your life, this struck me more than anything else, Akana, as the gift that you are to humanity, which goes so far beyond music. But a lot of the stepping stones in your life have been through music. But this is something you wrote about you, and it resonated deeply with me, and I expect it will, the rest of our audience. I value the freedom to listen to my na'o. Did I pronounce it right? Close. No. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, folks, he was coaching me before we went live on how to pronounce it. So I'll have to write it next time. Well, what is that? That's my gut, my inner voice. Some people might call it intuition. But here's um, Akana's words. The mobility to respond from empathy. I love that word mobility. The mobility to respond from empathy, passion, and pure inspiration, unbounded by world, worldly markers of success. This principle has guided my art, career, and life from day one. And as I read that, Makana, then I read the rest of your story, you were gracious and generous and, and vulnerable to share some of your many accomplishments in music which, which allowed you to capitalize on your music from a financial standpoint in a normal and abundant and huge way, but that would have thrown you into the system and mm -hmm. you opted out of those mm -hmm. financial opportunities. And I find that so remarkable because you know what you what you not only speak to, but your life is a is a pattern and an example of just incredible integrity to your authenticity. 
you know, we all have, oh, I'd really, you know, like to do this and I'd like to do that. But boy, it doesn't take much money or fame or power dangled in front of us to send us right off the rails, down the race to the bottom like everybody else. Mm. So can you tell us about some of the opportunities that you passed up? And maybe just speak to how did you stay grounded sure. in those authentic values and not be tempted to the money and the fame and the fortune? I mean, <clears throat> it started pretty early on. And, you know, I don't want to infer that I had some sort of abstract framework that, you know, some principle you know, set that I had developed so young that I was like, nope, that doesn't fit the principles. It was, it was uh, I, the best way I could describe my early decision-making process, um, and I'll give some examples, was this quote by, a, you know, the, what you might call the first Howley Zen poet, Paul Reps. And, <laughs> and he, he, he had this funny quote, it was, if, if it isn't fun, it's better left undone. And so, like, I remember the first time I got a record deal at 14 and it was um, the major label in Hawaii, which isn't on par with the majors in the world, but for Hawaii, it was like the main label. And they had a lot of resources and a great history and a huge collection. And they offered me uh, to do uh, slack key guitar interpretations of Hapahali like tourist songs. And I was like, hmm. So I, I went home and I kind of messed around with it and I, I just didn't like any of the material. And, he, and they kept telling me, you know, it's like a huge market for the Japanese tourists. And they gave me all these accounting numbers and stuff. And I looked at my mom and dad, I was like, eh, I don't, I'm, it's not fun. I'm not enjoying it. And this was, you know, like within a year after my master, Uncle Sonny Chillingworth had passed away. And also, you know, I, I had a number of amazing teachers, including Bobby Madero Jr. of Mauna Lua, his teacher, Raymond Kane, who had also passed away. And, and I was in this kind of shaky phase of like, I'd put so much time into this art form as a child already. And I didn't know where to go because like my elders were leaving. So I just followed what felt right. And then when I was like 18, 19, 20, all these different kinds of things came in, major label deals, big management with, um, I had a deal offered by Doc McGee, who is Kiss and Guns N' Roses and Motley Cruise manager. He wanted to open an acoustic division. And I asked him, I said, you know, what about my Hawaiian music and Slack Key? And he said, he laughed and, and he was like, I mean, Doc McGee is renowned. You know, he's the guy who Nikki Six punched out on MTV. I mean, these guys are legends. And he was like, you know, that's, that's, you know, you're not really going to have any time to do that. There's no money in it. You know, world music doesn't sell. You know, we're here to make money, but you can do it on the side, but you won't really have free time. And I really appreciated his frankness. You know, he was being honest. And I had 100% of nothing. They offered me, you know, a great deal. I would have been very rich, but I turned it down. And there were other stories after that, but they all kind of followed the same pattern. So, you know, a lot of my friends were like, what's wrong with you? You know, you get this one chance. What are you doing? And there were times along the journey after those choices where I was like trying to pay rent or struggling and just going, that was stupid. You know, I should have did this. But in the end, what I realized, what really informed that decision wasn't 
even this sense of a principle of artistic integrity, it was the terror having watched so many documentaries of, of knowing that if I signed away control over my artistic integrity and journey, I might wake up one day hating life so badly because I was compelled to do something that didn't feel right inside. And I knew that if my relationship to this magical process of creating music turned into that, with my sensibility and personality and the trauma I'd been through in my family and all these things, I was like, I could end up in a very, very bad place. I knew this really early on. So as much as I was attracted to the idea of a huge audience, there's nothing wrong with a huge audience. There's a huge amount wrong with being famous. Um, and I'm not against capital or money per se in that what it can do in terms of opening doors and creating mobility, especially for an artist, those were not enough to compel me to put myself in a dangerous position like so many people have done. Yeah, so many, not just in music, but in life, right? Selling out to what people think they should do to keep up or show up and leaving their soul in the dust. Yeah. And, and the other thing is I come from a cultural heritage, like an art form that I'm, you know, like, and for your audience, whoever your audience is out there, like I'm born and raised in Hawaii. I'm not of Hawaiian ancestry. I'm mostly Chinese and French and like a dozens of other things. And I, I have ancestry that traces all over the world, but you know, it puts me in a unique position in the sense that I'm part of a legacy framework that is different than a genetic framework. And I'm deeply entrenched in this legacy framework that's cultural, um, having a direct lineage from these masters. So there is also a sense of responsibility, you know, a sense of like, wow. I mean, I saw this, this show where uh, a famous journalist in Hawaii, Emmy Tamimbang, she had approached me and she said, I have all this footage no one's ever seen of your master, Uncle Sonny. And I'm going to make a show and I wanted to interview you now because it's been so many years after he passed and you learned from him. I said, great. So I remember the night it aired and she she starts with this footage and she asks him, this is eons ago. She's like, who do you think is going to carry on your music? And he's like, oh, there's this young boy. And he talks about me. And I just started crying and all of the choices that came up in the past where I had questioned, you know, did I make the right choice? You know, I'm not a household name. I'm not selling millions of records. Like, you know, I'm still playing me small to medium venues. You know, what, what did I? And at that moment I was like, Oh my God, I made the right choice. Like absolutely. Like the love and the trust that was placed in me, like, and I've made my career about honoring him and Slack Key. I mean, I'm getting ready to do a documentary about the art form. You know, I mean, it's been such a driving force for what I do. So in the end, I think even Aesop's fables, you know, the tortoise and the hare, like understanding that, like, and I, and I said this in a post yesterday, you know, I was like, I've taken so much of my career private. So much of what I do now is out of the public eye. And I've come to terms with the fact that if I'm doing anything that matters, to people, it probably will be more so recognized and, and, and people will derive more benefit from it after I'm gone. And I'm totally okay with that. I've had a lot of time to sit with that. And there's this long biochemical and sociological 
and, and, and mental and emotional process and even spiritual of coming to terms with moving out of this. You know, and I have to say the pandemic really, really became a catalyst because so many of us like had no performances for like a while, you know. And so during that transition, doing everything else I've been doing in production and things, it's like I have had to learn to create and not have. And now it's like it's like a drug. You, you go on this thing and you crave it and you're like, oh, my gosh, I create this epic thing. I have no one to show it to yet, you know, and and suddenly you realize. You were trained to need this. And, and if you go back in history, some of the greatest art never had this. Right. So this is kind of the existential space I've been in with my process. What a beautiful uh, redemption um, acknowledgement that he anointed you, that he, that he recognized you even at a young age. He trusted you and, and that you trusted doing the right thing was the right thing and it i hate to use the word paid off but you know it came back around and validated that you were on the right path and as i read your bio makana i i was struck with how many mentors you had that were i mean really incredible um historical figures in music in hawaii can you speak to, like, how did you see them and how did you, when you were actually working with them, how did you see that relationship? You know, because so many people, they go through life thinking, well, I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do and I'm going to do it all myself. And if I allow myself to be coached or mentored, that makes me somehow less than or vulnerable to criticism or you know, there's not a very powerful distinction in our society for that kind of coaching or mentorship. And I think so many people leave almost everything they could create on the table because they don't avail themselves to the masters. So how did you find those people and how did you present yourself or be with them such that you took full advantage and they saw that as honoring them and they returned the energy. I mean, all of the credit goes to my parents and to my first teacher. Uh, my, oh. my, my dad, who was from Minnesota, my mom was third generation of Hawaii. My dad is from Minnesota who, who moved to Hawaii, fell in love with Hawaiian music so deeply. I mean, it, it, growing up, there was only Hawaiian music and religious music in our house. Nothing else was allowed. Um, so early on, I had this, this, big exposure through him and my mom who was Miss Waikiki and, and Miss Hawaii International and a singer and she danced hula and you know she she also exposed me but I remember learning I was in the Honolulu Boy Choir when I was young and then I was learning ukulele from Roy Sakuma one of the great teachers of Hawaii taught tens of thousands of children I was in his class and at some point, my dad was like, I want you to learn something more traditional. And we saw this TV show, Portraits of Paradise, that was produced by a friend of mine, Mike Buck, in Honolulu. And it featured Raymond Kane and his protege, Bobby Madero. And at that time, I was like 10 or 11, and Bobby was like 20 or 21. So we went to the Kiho Alu, which is the Hawaiian term for slack key guitar, went to the festival. 
And for, for those of you who are like, you know, still struggling, like, what is this Slack key thing they're talking about? I just want to quickly say Spain has flamenco, Brazil has uh, bossa nova, the Delta has the blues, Hawaii has Kiho Alu or Slack key guitar. This originated maybe 150 years ago. It uses, it's called Slack key because we slacker or loosen the keys. We create our own tunings and then we play bass, rhythm, and melody all at the same time on the, this guitar. And it, it has a very full symphonic sound. It's very rare art form. There's only a handful of us that play it. So I grew up in this tradition. And because of Bobby Raymond's protege, he became like a big brother to me. I would go sleep at the foot of his bed like a puppy. And, and, and like, you know, just hang out at his gigs and, and I would absorb everything. And, and it was more like the bond between Bobby and I as brothers and as family and the joy and the laughter and the jokes and the silliness and the escape from a lot of the stresses of being at home um, that created this world where I felt like I could cultivate a sense of self. And then I met Bobby's teacher, Uncle Raymond, and I was terrified of Raymond. And I learned from Raymond uh, uh, a few lessons, but I um, chose to stay with Bobby because I was just scared of Uncle Raymond. <laughs> um, and then I, when Uncle Sonny came along, his, his wife, Kiki, um, applied for a grant for us from the State Foundation of Culture and the Arts so he could be paid to teach me. Uh, and he wouldn't accept money from, from my family. And so that was wonderful. And I spent like his last healthy year with him because he had cancer. And so I would just sit in the garage. And I think, you know, I always tell people, I never had this thought, oh, I'm learning from the master. Like that thought never, ever even crossed my mind till decades later. It was really a sense of, oh, I'm going to uncle's house. And then I would get in trouble because I was playing Nintendo video games and not practicing enough. But I was really good at hustling last minute and trying to fool him, except my mom would tell on me. You know, so it was, it, there was nothing abstract. And this is, this is my philosophy about it is when you're young, you don't have these abstract like principles that you have to follow. You just are very instinctual and you follow what feels good and you run away from what doesn't, you know, and it felt good to be around these people. It felt good. Um, but I had no idea of the gravity of what was happening. And I think, you know, in terms of what you said about, today how there's this hyper-individualistic culture, you might call it. And, you know, this libertarian fantasy, I call it. The idea of, you know, <clears throat> if I just work hard and I'm on my own, like, I, you know, I'm, I have my gun and, I, you know, I have my house and this and that, then I'm good. And, and of course, it's very intellectually dishonest to think like that. I mean, we, we can't really function at all to the level we expect to in this modern day and age without the contributions of millions of people, some of them who've come and gone long before us, some of them who are still here today. So music is the same thing. If you, you know, I remember having this conversation with a friend and I was, they were, you know, we were talking about our influences and, and that friend was like, oh, my influences are like the guys on the people on the radio today. And I was like, that's weird. That's weird. You know, it's like a horizontal parallel thing. I was like, my influences are like from hundreds of years ago and all the way up and everything, you know, and it's like, yeah, I pay attention to what's going on today, but it's it's almost cannibalistic to, you know, be reaching horizontally across the aisle rather than back in time. And I think that it's a blessing to have learned 
from masters and like for people who go to like music college like Juilliard or whatever and you learn what came before you it gives you the opportunity to be part of a fabric yeah that, that you can then weave a little bit and then you're gone and that's our job as musicians nobody's creating anything or totally original that's ridiculous yeah i mean you know thousands of years billions of ideas it's all floating out there. Strikes me, Makana, that you are fortunate, have been fortunate to be raised in the culture of Hawaii and it's ohana. So, you know, people may be wondering, well, why are all your masters called uncle and why are their wives called auntie? And, you know, this is new to me, having only lived in Hawaii now for nine years, but um, I was struck with the family nature of the culture and how tight it is and trusting and intimate and loving and caring and, you know, extends beyond the people into the land, right? To the, to the water, to the sea, to the air, to that whole ecosystem is really, really special in our world. And you being a product of it, um, that was good fortune. And, and your parents being aligned with that culture, good fortune. Yeah, and I think it also, you know, speaks to the resilience of the host culture of Kanaka Baoli and, and of you know, of course, like if you look at something like slack key as an art form, this is something that only exists because of cross pollination between cultures. There were no stringed instruments in ancient Hawaii. So, you know, I recognize that and, and the collaborative effort of um, one culture interacting with another culture and that culture kind of recontextualizing and digesting and spinning out something totally its own using those frameworks and, and raw materials. This is the beauty of human interaction. And then there's the dark side of, you know, what I call the empire and how, you know, so much of the culture has been challenged and erased. And one of the reasons why, you know, beyond talking about my fortune, the good fortune of having a life in slack key guitars, it's one of those rare art forms that was so personal. And, and because of the oppression of the language of, of hula that was called demonic by the missionaries, all these things, right? And, th and this time that was so violent, kind of erasing the identity uh, yeah. uh, of, of the native people of Hawaii. Um, slack key guitar was one of these art forms that wasn't a performative art form. It was something very personal. If the kids would come in in the room when the dad or the mom were playing, they might detune the guitar and put it away. They didn't want to share it with their own kids. So it was almost lost. Wow. And it really reflects, you know, um, I mean, I can go on forever about this, but you know, there's been a lot of conversations around my career with other people talking about, you know, oh, he's not a purist or oh, he's changing the art form or this or that. And my, my attitude has always been consistent. It's always been, it's like a banyan tree. The roots have to go as deep as they can in order for the branches to go as high as they can. And you're constantly moving backward and forward in time, understanding this art form. And, and that is again, a responsibility, you know, it's a privilege, but it's also a responsibility um, to understand that in, in the short time we have here, you have to both 
try to bring as much as you can of what's being forgotten forward so that it's there and available to be interface with with the people live today and the future and then you have to contribute as much as you can too in the spirit of that and you can't do that if you didn't listen deeply to what came before you right <clears throat> yeah as you say your your brief time in the span of time you know even if we live 100 years brief in the span of hi history and your opportunity to weave a little because the art you know, it's really only art if it grows, if it expands, if it seeks opportunities and boundaries. You know, the idea to leave it the way it was 100 years ago creates a stagnation. Yeah, and I don't think anyone's capable of even having a relationship to a piece of art from another time in the same way that those living in that time had a relationship to it. I mean, I think that's to be really honest about it. So, I mean, I look at Hula, you know, I'm not, I'm no, you know, uh, authority on Hula, but I've been around it my whole life and been, had the blessed opportunity to work with some of the greatest dancers. And Hula is something that's so interesting because you, you look at it as a performative dance today, but before missionary contact and before the Westerners came, what you had was um, Hula was really chant with much less movement. And it was really a genealogical uh, record. Um, there were uh, a spiritual component to it, a relationship to the ecosystem, as you call it, which was deified and personified. And it became largely more performative with the, the, the imposition of this Western culture on it that demanded it to be that and also, you know, like didn't want the meanings and all of that. So things became veiled into body movements. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. Kimmy told me that some of the finest hula artists originally were men. Because it was just, definitely, definitely um, both Kane and Wahine. And, you know, I mean, it gets complicated. It, you know, we were, I was having this conversation the other day with a friend, like, you know, he was like, show me any actual historical matriarchal cultures. And I just went crazy on that um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> because there were many. But I think that for sure there there were there were some things that were very patriarchal. That's 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 a digression we could go into for hours. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, yeah. it struck me as you know because I, I what I understand about Hula is just storytelling, and storytelling is you know what keeps the culture the historical um, part of the, the culture intact. And I you know you learn. We're, we're like a, a Howley from California sees Hula as, oh, those are the girls that dance at the luau's, right? That's that's how we see Hula, and it so so much is not the historical significance. Of course, of it. that's the commodification of culture. Yeah. You know, it's sad. Um, I'm going to send you a clip, uh, Makana, that I think you will enjoy. enjoy many of my clients have seen it in my workshops. It's a, it's a clip from the movie, Walk the Line, the story of Johnny Cash. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's one of the most profound coaching moments that I've ever seen depicted in film, which I always find fascinating that some of the, some of the most profound things are, you know, actually people writing the scripts for a film and it's Johnny Cash. Um, I forget his name, the whoever the the agent was for Elvis and 
Memphis that, you know, like discovered Elvis. The Colonel? Uh, yeah, the Colonel. <laughs> so he's in his studio and he gets his um, audition for his music. And his music is basically gospel. Um, and so the Colonel is, okay, show me what you got. And, and Johnny Cash is playing gospel. And in the movie, and I have shown this to thousands and thousands of people in audiences or one-on-one to, to lay out the distinction of making a choice for authenticity and, you know, following your intuition and your gut and having the courage to do that. And, and, you know, not only once, but, you know, maybe every day or every week or every month as the world bombards you with opportunities to get derailed from who you, who you truly are. And the Colonel basically tells Johnny Cash, the world doesn't want to hear any more gospel like that. It's on every radio station. Nobody cares. I can't sell it. Have you got anything else? And Johnny Cash has a, a trio. So he has two other guys playing with him. And, um, and Johnny Cash asks the Colonel, he says, well, um, um, you got anything against the military? And Colonel says, no. And Johnny Cash says, I do. I do. And, uh, and then he plays an original song that he wrote and the other two guys have never heard it. Right. And so they catch on and, and that launches his career. And I was never personally a huge fan of Johnny Cash, but it, uh, his music, but a huge fan after studying him of how he, he carved his own way. Right. And, you know, he didn't live maybe the most admirable life, but I'll send it to you. You will enjoy it for sure. There's a lot of things I want to get into. I kind of want to get into how you see the world and how you see, you know, you're so grounded in the simple, magnificent arts of the world. And yet the world is bombarding us with like a meteor shower of distractions and and assaults on integrity and honesty and truth. And you and I were talking about chat GPT and, and how that, and AI and how that's just gonna disrupt the world. I know you're studying that. I know that, you know, part of your journey is making sense of all that. Tell us about that. Tell us about what you see there and how you see navigating a, a valuable, authentic life in the face of all of this chaos? Mm. Well, <clears throat> everything, I've come to approach every question through a class framework. I just have. And what I mean by that is, it's like, I'll give you an example. Like when I'm, I'm writing a story, I've been working on a musical for a long time. I'm on my like 10th or 12th rewrite. And last night I had a huge breakthrough after three days of really slogging schl through <laughs> the dark void of nothingness, you right. know? <clears throat> and I was talking to a friend and I'm like, I was like reminding him, like, don't ever forget the main character in our story isn't an individual. It's the climate within which this, these, all these characters and their arcs occur. He's like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, it's really the socioeconomic climate. I mean, what I mean is it's the economic climate. What I mean, it's, it's the economy. Because this, this fantasy of 
of individual agency only comes into play at a certain level in the video game of life. I mean, if you're not at that level where you have what you might call agency, then you're in survival mode. That's just a fact. You're either in survival mode or you have some sort of agency beyond just surviving. And I think there's a gigantic myth that survival and access to those things that we need as human beings to live just a basic dignified life, not some luxurious existence, but just basic dignified life, you know, sleep, food, water, communication, medicine, access to information, transportation, those kind of things have somehow fallen into this category of like, no one deserves these things there. No one has a right to these things unless they earn it. And the reason why I bring this up is when you talk about this nexus of like economy and technology and the arts and culture and things, you have to be honest about the fact that the majority of human beings are still living in that emergency survival mode. And people who are not living in that are the minority. And the majority of people who are not in that survival thing are accessing resources largely because they're subsidized by the underpaid labor and extractive exploitive systems that bring those into our circle. That's what empire is. That's what America is really. Yeah. So going beyond morality, just to understand that when you talk about disruption, like to technology, right? Look at Napster, for instance, right? And look at Apple. I mean, I'm on an Apple computer right now, you know, and there's things about Apple that boils my blood so much. The main thing that I will never forgive Apple for is destroying the art form called the album because they destroyed the album yeah. inarguably, you know, using the MP3 iTunes platform. Right. And so in relation to what I'm saying, this whole idea of how it hurt musicians People are talking about how AI is going to disrupt. I just read an article this morning, you know, the like you can ask ChatGPT which industries and how fast will they be completely turned upside down? And when are companies going to start canning real people? Well, we're already seeing that, right? It's no, it's no like, like coincidence that tens of thousands of tech industry people are getting canned right now with AI coming up so fast. So the broader point is, is musicians, as much as most of us are struggling, we're still here, you know? And what we had to do was diversify because now we don't have a product to sell, right? So now we have crowdsourcing, we have, I have Patreon, right? Where I charge a monthly subscription for access to lessons, tutorials, music, concerts. You know, you still have touring, all these things. But the point is, is when technology comes in, and gobbles up a, a sector of the economy that supports you know, so many people, there's a big scramble, right? And musicians happen to almost always be on the forefront of this displacement machine. So we know a lot about it, you know? And right now what you're seeing, for example, in our, our industry is voiceover actors and even singers, their recordings are being swallowed up by these machine learning systems and then new fictional AI generated voices are replacing them in the work that has been their domain for so long. They built careers around it, but it's learned from 
consuming and regurgitating out their own work product and IP, and they're not getting compensated for it. So this all leads me to say, the only reason why we should fear AI disrupting certain industries is because we live in a capitalist economy where the basic necessities of human dignified existence aren't available to everyone. And um, I will recommend a great read for everybody. Um, it's called MANA, M-A-N-N-A. It's free on the internet. I'll send you a link to it. You can share it with your viewers. Right. And it shows two different paths that might the AI could take society down. And so, you know, for me, it's like, um, when you look at jobs for, it's not just AI, we're talking about all technology, you know, you look at jobs like picking strawberries and blueberries, for instance, we all love strawberries and blueberries. Everybody loves it. Today's the first day of spring. I'm excited. You know, no white American wants to do those jobs. Right. <laughs> no American wants to do this. I mean, there's whole scientific studies about this. Like it's a fact. And so we were having a big debate the other day about, well, what happens when that machine that really like uses all these crazy technologies to pick everything, get, you know, takes away those jobs. That's not fair. That's not fair. And I said, those jobs were never fair. They break your back. They you require incredible skill. You're, you're working as an indentured slave, basically, you know, you have no rights. You're not earning a living wage by far. No one wants that job, but they need it. So the simple answer to the disruption that's coming is we need to fight for what I would call a floor, a floor that's a dignified floor. And we can absolutely afford it. We're spending $1 trillion on the military. So you can't address any of these problems that you're talking about. And even bringing it down to the original thought that you shared, which was living a life of personal integrity and things. And that's why I use the word mobility. Mobility is a privilege. Mobility doesn't just mean you can go from point A to point B. It means in your mind, in your heart, you can go from point A to point B. And your journey toward any place that you're called to go isn't um, first informed by your need to survive. You know, and, and again, some of us live in this fantasy world where tomorrow we can say, oh, I feel like going here. It's like, that's awesome. It's great. There's nothing morally wrong with that, but we need to understand that the majority of humans don't have that luxury and there's a reason. And it's not because we're smarter. It's not because we worked harder. It's not because we earned it, but it's because of many factors. The main one being is we happen to be in a position, in a structure that built itself off of exploiting other nations' resources. Yes, <clears throat> great history there in capitalism and the society and and there's a big tug of war right big the the old school capitalists are hanging on for dear life to their billions and their power and and the masses are rising up and it's going to be an interesting tipping point in the future it's it's you know it's always amazed me that that people of means can be so selfish and so isolated and and you know espouse a philosophy of you know meritocracy where you know i created my success and i'm hanging on to my success and <laughs> these people that you know the homeless people and the, you know keep them away from me and i don't want to share any of my billions with them and yet 
if that same person were to somehow magically create a relationship, even a happenstance relationship with a disenfranchised individual, they would give them everything, right? They'd give them whatever they need. And wh why is that? And I have an answer to this. I want to hear it. it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really, it really comes down to, to control. You know, I have a saying, every issue is a control issue. You know, and, and control the, the, the impulse, I'll call it the impulse to control is it's a terrifyingly instinctual thing in humans. It's so deep in us that people can murder and not understand even why they're murdering from this instinctual impulse. And the thing is, is when you make it a habit to on your daily life to wherever to to really investigate where am I feeling any sort of not vulnerability in the sense of of being open to another person, but vulnerability in the sense of like a security risk to my well-being emotionally, physically or whatever. You start to realize that it's I, I truly believe it's it's individual and epigenetic and present life trauma that has shaped our economic system. It's this this hoarding, this idea that you need so much more than you actually do. I mean, a few years ago, I realized like I can't stand big houses because I end up, you know, really spending 95 percent of my time either at the kitchen sink and a cutting board or in the bathroom or sleeping or in one position in the house working, you know, okay. and all the rest is just mental space for right. me to feel. So you, if you kind of look at things differently and where you say, how much mental space does a person need to feel safe, to feel they're in control? The people who are the most insecure and can't achieve that sense of personal safety and control are the ones who need to own thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of land and this and that. And they tell themselves they're preserving it and this and that. But at the end of the day, ownership is really a fallacy, you know? And so I think like for me, the way that I do, like, what's the takeaway here? Like, okay, you can philosophize about economy. It's all day. But for me, the takeaway is every day I try to do something inside of myself to face head on that thing that's terrifying me, like that discomfort. And my New Year's resolution was invite discomfort. And let me tell you, for instance, right? I did a month of production at a great location. I was above a bakery in, in this place in the city called Juarez. It was so much fun. There was like hipsters and social vibes. And we'd go out to the bar after we we're done. And it was really fun. And then my friend had to go on tour and I'm meeting him next week at a different place. But I, I said, okay, I'm going to go work on my musical. I got to be disciplined. I have all these other people to go to museums and bars and dance. And was, no, going to work on the musical. And my gosh, the past three or four days have been miserable for me because I didn't have the social interaction. I had to focus on doing something that was really uncomfortable for me. I didn't have the support and resources and help, but I didn't give up. And I woke up today feeling so amped up because I went through that dark night of my soul on my own 
without anyone holding my hand, without any material comforts to get me through and distractions and Netflix and all this other stuff. And I arrived at something magical in me that's not a commodity. And if people can do this in their own life more and more, it doesn't let the system off the hook. <clears throat> but I think that it makes us more capable of living fulfilled lives of integrity with less materialism having to buttress our mental state of well-being. As you're talking about that, I just had this vision of, imagine how much um, independence and freedom and agency the masses would have if they changed the paradigm of just home ownership to a mini home, right? You can buy a mini home for $35,000 or $40,000. You know, there may be five, 600 square feet. And yet the paradigm is, you know, home ownership, hundreds of thousands of dollars, which takes a lifetime to pay off. And all that unused space. Right? It's true. And also I have to say, I mean, when you start to learn about the history of how the mortgage came about, it's insane. And I mean, the, the whole thing, you know, one of the themes I've been playing with is the nuclear family. I just read <clears throat> a number of books on this and articles. The Atlantic had a great article about the aberration of the nuclear family. It's a, it's a recent organizational structure, you know, and if you like not all cultures used this structure uh, and un until recently, you know, it became popular. And I think that one of the problems, the many problems I have with the nu nuclear family is that it creates smaller competitive units that each have to own a copy of everything that they, they all need. You know, for instance, <clears throat> cars. What's up with cars? We you all know, have, I mean, to have three, and we don't let anybody use them. <laughs> yeah, cars are cars are ridiculous. I mean, you know, again, like the whole history of roads and how Ford came. I mean, when you reverse engineer and start to understand that the stories we believe about how wealth was built and how history came about are inversions of what actually really happened. You know, like the car never would have taken off without all the roads. Right. It was what, what made America powerful was the railroads and the, the asphalt roads for the cars. That's what, you know, created this thing that had never really been done before anywhere. And so all of that was socialized. All those expenses were socialized, you know, like my people, the Chinese workers that were getting blown up <laughs> left and right and, and all the, the African-Americans and blah, blah, blah. So the point is, is, it's like if we're all pursuing this dream of like, you know, a, a spouse and kids and our own house and our own everything, that story, that narrative is destructive. It's destructive on a micro level because most people have to go through immense stress to try to even scrape at it. Yeah. It's destructive when it's working. Read Vonnegut. He talks all about this. I mean, when it's working, it's destructive. That's why you have thousands of shows about it. I'm writing a musical about it right now, you know, and it's not the, it's not what I call it, but my working title joke is nuclear, nuclear family fallout. You know, it's just like you look at even when it's working, it's a train wreck. Even when it's working, how many rich families are divorced and kids you know, yeah. committing suicide or whatever. It's like, so the markers of what we pursue, I think is where the revolution has to start. It's like, and this is why 
I value being an artist with mobility is and mobility, meaning the veracity and tenacity to thrive with a huge support from my friends and people that care about what I'm doing and to create new narratives, narratives, sorry. <laughs> narratives that Earth moves in Mexico City. <laughs> no earthquake. No, thank you. Um, to create narratives that inspire people to rethink what they're valuing, what they're pursuing, what they identify with. This is the only thing that can really cause change to me. Otherwise, it's going to be force and violence that causes change. And I prefer it to be art. Yeah. You know, um, we were talking before we went live about how long we would talk. And um, most of my broadcasts go 45 minutes. Um, and uh, you, you and I could talk. Well, I could listen, actually. I could just listen to you for hours. You are incredibly articulate and um, well-studied and well-thought and a life well-lived. And I, and here's what I want to do. I, I had a feeling something great would come out of this interview. And, and what I believe will come out of it is my audience, which... Um, is a pretty good audience. I think so many of them are going to want to hear more. They're just going to want to tap into you Makana. for forever, for the rest of their lives, whether it's your music or your, your social media or your writings or your, just your life, because you are a brilliant thought leader that has, that, that deserves to be listened to because of your integrity. It's like a Mahatma Gandhi kind of life and integrity. And I so admire that. And I'm so inspired by it. And I so want to listen to the rest of your journey. Mm. And so my call to action for those of you listening is, hey, let's tap into this spirit, to this vision, to this soul, and let's go on the ride with him and let's listen and learn. Here's a mentor. Here's a coach. Here's somebody that can maybe bring some sense to our lives because it is a matter of us all collectively progressing and learning and coming to embrace a new paradigm or we're faced with some sort of catastrophe shifting our paradigm. And I think both. We yeah. didn't have to blow up our world or run out of clean water or totally pollute our environment or kill each other before we wake up. So, Makana, how can people best follow you? Where can they find you? Where can they support you if they want to do that? And where can they? go for the ride with you. Thank you for that, Richard. I, 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 before I give that information, I just want to say, you know, if there's one thing that listeners take away from this random stream of consciousness we've been <laughs> sharing is, is I think value, valuable change, you know, not all changes is, is positive per se, or has outcomes that benefit 
you know, everyone or anyone, but valuable change, the kind of change that moves us collectively toward uh, a more understanding and compassionate society and a less destructive one has to start with the courage to honestly audit oneself on a daily basis. And it's completely divorced for me from self-help. The self-help industry is a whole nother thing. Um, and there's value there. But what I'm talking about is, is this idea of comfort becoming our masters and reducing us from greatness. Yeah. It, it truly reduces us. And so, you know, like I, 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 I make fun of people a lot because that's how I deal with things, you know, and I have a friend who lives in a certain part of Hawaii and we're always laughing to each other because she has all these girlfriends and all, they're all super rich and all they want to do, like they, this is what they live for is to have their Palhana glass of wine and just gossip. Like that's the epitome of their existence. And that's not our thing. And we make fun of it all the time. And there's nothing wrong with getting together with your girlfriends or your guy friends or whatever. And everybody loves to do this very human thing. But what we make fun of is this idea of buffering yourself with wealth. And then the epitome of your joy is bitching and drinking <laughs> alcohol. Right. And this is like, this is what the, the owner class often does, you know, and maybe for other parts of the owner class, it's just the idea of beating someone, winning, getting more power, getting a trade that goes well, you know, closing a deal, whatever. All of these things are extremely childish. <laughs> they're, they're not bad. They're not inhuman. They're not abnormal they're unfortunately very normal but they're not for me as rewarding as some of the other things we can do as human beings so my point is is we can't change the world but we can cultivate not our best selves but a kind of self that embraces uncertainty embraces challenges to our ego embraces challenges to the comfort of our little collection of knowledge and orientation to how we see things to invite relationships that respectfully and gracefully push us to grow that hold us accountable i mean the whole idea of being terrified of being held accountable and why we have mob mentality and cancel culture now is because we haven't cultivated a space for any accountability, right? So even in our friendships, like your friendships and your familial relationship are, are ground zero for the revolution. That's where the revolution happens. Like, okay, you have a kid, you love your kid. You don't want your kid to suffer. You want your kid to go to college, this and that. But have you also thought about how your kid's going to affect other people? Have you had that talk? You know, and it's all these kinds of things that make people either really shitty or they make people really wonderful. And I think if we start a movement 
that has to do with the closest relationships to us rather than going online and ranting at the stranger and you know telling them off and all that that's just emotional mismanagement if we can create this climate where we start to revolutionize our families we start to revolutionize our neighborhoods now we have some sort of agency and we can use our wealth and class position to facilitate these important movements and conversations and lead by example and still feel good no one's saying go pick up and go work on the chain gang (laughs) (laughs) you know all your wealth yeah but the point is 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 there is this like human beings are very limited in what we can actually experience happiness is a myth you know you're you're not made to be happy all the time it's insane you know, your happiness only works when your dopamine hits a certain way. Your brain isn't made. It's there. I just read 10 studies on how too much dopamine and in a constant heightened state can cause all kinds of organ problems. You know, so it's like the goals that we're seeking are toxic. That's my point. We're seeking toxic goals. You know, so if we can start to spend a little time every day alone where we face something that makes us uncomfortable, and then spend a little time in a relationship where we cultivate more compassion and grace. I think that's a great beginning for people, you know, and, and I'm on that journey. I, I don't share as much as I should, but I'm getting ready to, because I'm coming out of this intense production cycle. So you can follow me on, you know, at Makana music. It's on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. It's all the same. I have my website, Makana music.com M A K A N A. And yeah, many more uh, things in the cooker planned that I, I'm not going to talk about, but some 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 radical things. And my fans know, you know, I think the thing I'm most proud of is that uh, that time when the Obamas had me play uh, first at the White House and then invited me to play at APEC, the Asian Pacific Economic Cooperative Conference with 21 or 22 prime ministers and presidents. I was invited to play the dinner. And I turned it into a political protest. And but <laughs> I, I love this story. <laughs> I did it. I did it as gracefully as I could. And I, what I really did was it, it, not so much punk the presidents, but I punked corporate media because I turned it into a narrative, and it became viral. It became the number one story in the world on Yahoo. Uh, Hawaiian musician occupies world leaders dinner. Uh, you can put in CNN Makana, and it's some of the most classic interviews you've ever heard in your life, like pure comedy. It's a, but, it's a great story. Occupy with aloha and just a t-shirt changes the world. But what, what I was most proud of wasn't that. It was that I had all these letters and emails, like a million of them from, of course, I'm obviously far left in my politics. I had all my liberal fans and, you know, communist fans. Everybody else is like so happy and like, this is heroic and stuff. That wasn't what I was proud of. What I was proud of is the hardcore libertarian and right-wing and Republican fans and people who weren't my fans who wrote to me and said, young man, young man at the time, I'm so proud of what you did. I don't agree with your politics. I'm totally on the opposite side of the fence, but your articulation and grace, I'm gonna follow your career. I really appreciate it, respect you. And that, 
brought tears to my eyes and made me feel that warm, fuzzy feeling because the moment we can humanize each other, we don't have to agree, but we can humanize and have some level of dignity in our interactions. That's what we've lost with the internet and that's what we need to bring back. You are a rare gem, Makana, great gift. And I, I am going to study you and I'm gonna interview you again. And I'm gonna promote that other people interview you because you have, you have a great mind and an even greater heart. And you have the courage to pursue the integrity of what, what makes sense to you and what feels right to you. And, and I love that you embrace the idea that not everybody has to agree with you. We don't have to agree with each other, but we do have to talk to each other and we have to respect each other or we will annihilate our environment. And you're a great leader in that regard. And I feel very fortunate to have interviewed you and look forward to sharing this message with millions of people. Thank you for joining the Authentic Networker. Mahalo, Richard. Mahalo to everyone out there. And uh, it's been a joy talking with you, brother. Okay, thanks, buddy. Hey, all of you, don't forget the Authentic Networker. Share this podcast with your family and your friends and start the movement right there. Thanks for joining us.